From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Back to school carries so much more baggage than do I have the right supplies and will I like my teacher? That's as the Delta variant looms large. Kids 11 under don't have that choice to get vaccinated right now. And I feel like it's very obvious that our community is at high risk. How one district in Pueblo County came to its decision to make masks optional. Then no vaccine, no service. A Denver restaurant group will require customers to be immunized. We can vaccinate our staff, but if we have a lot of unvaccinated guests coming in, then it's not going to be as effective. And we also think that it's important to be doing our part from a community standpoint, and this is going to help that. Plus, military life, racism, and rap, all folded into the works of Denver author Stephen Dunn. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Students are back in school as early as this week, some with masks, some without. The state isn't mandating them. Local officials make that decision. Colorado's largest district, Denver, as well as schools in Boulder County, will require masks on campus. Other districts are only recommending them, like Pueblo 70. We'll check in with them shortly. CPR health reporter John Daly is tracking the patchwork. What fascinates me is you might expect masking rules to be stricter where there's low vaccination, but that's not the case. Let me give you one direct contrast. In Jefferson County, in Metro Denver, and in Eagle County, where Vail is, both places have relatively high vaccination rates, and also relatively high COVID transmission right now, but they're handling this differently. In Jeffco, masks are required for kids aged 3 to 11, and for unvaccinated staff, they're optional for other students and staff. By contrast, in Eagle County, masks are not required for anybody. Age 11 being key because you have to be 12 to be immunized. John's been speaking with parents... Kaylin Robinson lives in Mesa County near Grand Junction on the Western Slope. The district is not calling for a mask requirement in schools. Robinson says she and her husband are fully vaccinated. She's wondering whether or not to send her five-year-old to kindergarten. Kids 11 under don't have that choice to get vaccinated right now. And I feel like it's very obvious that our community is at high risk. She and a friend started a petition to get the school district to reconsider and require masks, but she faces a headwind because parents and students there have protested against masks before, and that sort of thing is spreading to places that do have mask requirements this fall, like Jeffco. Last week, we saw a protest there. Again, CPR health reporter John Daly. Now, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that children resume in-person learning this fall. It also recommends masks for people older than two years old, regardless of vaccination status. That's along with good ventilation, plus testing and quarantine protocols. And the CDC says basically the same thing. 
Well, school starts tomorrow in Pueblo District 70, where masks are, quote, strongly encouraged but not required. To hear hear about that uh, decision-making in District 70, which has about 10,000 students, spokesman Todd Seip is on the line. He's a member of the COVID response team, and he's a former science and engineering teacher. Todd, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be with you today, and I I look forward to uh, giving out some information this morning. Why did the district decide to make masks optional, despite the recommendations uh, I just ran through from the CDC and the pediatricians? Sure. And, and, and just to clear it up, you know, making masks optional is not that we're, that, that we're thinking about not requiring masks in the future or that we don't want anybody to wear a mask. It's just at this point, we're, we're following the recommendations as recommendations. We're working closely in partnership with our local health department. We've got many weekly meetings where we discuss and we track the local hospitalizations, the infection rates, the positivity We also have our COVID response team working with the health department. Also, we're on part of a unified communications team with all of our local government agencies where we talk about mitigation efforts, um, talk about those um, collaboration things that we can do, not just in schools, but across all of our community. And we know that uh, if masks become required indoors here in Pueblo County in schools, we're gonna follow those requirements. but if we're truly trying to stem the spread of this as the Delta variant um, is, is projected to increase here over the next couple of months, then we strongly believe that also they should be required across all indoor locations, not just schools. So you want consistency. Do I hear you saying that it would be easier guidance if the state mandated masks? We hear some parents asking for that. Well, I, and I think we're in this point where there's there just seems to be a lot of finger pointing and some of those rules just get moved down to lower and lower levels. Um, requiring masks in schools eventually becomes just the uh, the teachers that are going to have to um, control that in their schools. So we want to make sure that there's kind of equity across the board. We know that students are out of school, you know, just as long as they're in school. And so let's make sure that if we're keeping them safe, that we're keeping them safe in all the areas where they're at. But aren't you making it more difficult on teachers if masks are only recommended? In other words, I'm trying, and you've been in the classroom, so uh, put me in your shoes as a former science teacher. If uh, a teacher has 30 or 40 kids and some of them are supposed to wear masks because their parents want them to, and some of them don't, how would you possibly keep track of that? So we have our COVID response team that meets with that, but you know, masks are just part, like you said earlier, part of this multi-layered strategy. We've improved our ventilation across the district. We've, over the last 18 months, figured out how to move um, kids into to bigger spaces, increase their physical distancing, We've had lots of talks about hand washing and good hygiene, um, following all of our COVID cleaning practices that our custodians implemented last year, really encouraging and asking our parents to, um, before they send their kids out to school, check with them, check to make sure that they're not feeling ill or that there's something unusual happening health-wise with them. Um, And we're also really encouraging those mask wearings. Um, Students will still have to wear masks on the bus as they travel to and from school. We hope they just keep the masks on while they come into the school and just keep them on. I was at uh, well, let me let me have you address night. though the question sure. that I asked, which is how do teachers enforce when they have forty kids, some of whom are supposed to wear masks and some of whom 
uh, may not be obligated to by their parents. How, how, as an educator, do you manage that in a classroom? You know, it, it's really difficult. And you would end up taking away time from instruction to um, have little Johnny or little Susie, make sure you put your mask on. No, make sure you put it on right. It's got to be over your nose. It can't be over your mouth, just only. And and so you end up becoming more of a of a clothing, you know, you're, you're trying to make sure that they've got got it worn correctly and fitted correctly. And, uh, and doesn't that become more difficult when you have half the kids masked and half of them not and tracking who must be and who doesn't need to be? Yeah. And you could even have some classrooms where you might have 11 year olds and 12 year olds in the same classroom. So, um, then you get into that situation where some could be and required to be, and some don't have to be because they're vaccinated. And, and then it becomes almost kind of a, an equity issue. Um, we, we, we just hope that, um, you know, our students are kind and compassionate, our parents are kind and compassionate, and, and they, they really work at in enforcing their, their best education practices for their own students um, as they come to school. And if they feel that it's important to wear that mask in school, that they wear those masks in school. I feel like we're not getting to the heart of it, which is does the idea of making masks optional make the enforcement harder on the teacher? Maybe it doesn't make it harder for the teacher. Maybe that's that's one thing that they're not having to worry about as to enforce those masks. Um, when it was a requirement last year, it was just understood that everybody wears a mask. Now that it's optional, you're not having to worry about who's going to wear it and who's not going to wear it. It, it just becomes an an option where if, if Johnny's not wearing a mask, then Johnny's parents are, have either gotten him vaccinated or they're okay with him not wearing a I mask. I hear you saying then there won't be a lot of enforcement on educators' part uh, well, under when this you, approach. Yeah, when you have an optional mask, you know, or, or strongly required masks, you know, you're, you're not going to really enforce that policy because there is no policy. What did you hear from your community? And and is that why you made the decision you made, um, again, which is not the recommendation of the CDC and, and pediatricians nationwide? So Pueblo School District 70 is one of the largest geographical school districts in the state. We've got 21 schools over five different zip codes from the Eastern Plains and Avondale all the way up against the Western Slopes up in Rye. Um, about 55 miles apart in some areas. So we've got some really diverse communities around here in um, whether you're out on the Eastern Plains or in the mountains or out in Pueblo West. We, we have had a lot of parents who have shown up to our board meetings, as you can imagine, that um, are strongly opposed to having any kind of mask requirements in school. They feel like they want to be able to make that choice. Not so many parents on the other side who are, are, are asking us to uh, require those masks. Um, I'm sure there are some out there, but they've been kind of few and far between to be heard. But at an open house last night, I can tell you that probably 30% of the people there in the open house were wearing masks, and it, was, it didn't seem to be an issue at all. Uh, it, you hinted at the beginning of our conversation that if the Delta variant were to get more serious in your neck of the woods, uh, if you were starting to see transmission among kids, that you might change your approach. Uh, is that generally true about in-person versus remote learning? How flexible do you think you're going to have to be going into this school year? We learned a lot from the last 18 months. And in Pueblo County, you can look back and compare 
the, the positivity of cases and hospitalizations in Pueblo County back in November and December were higher than any other county in the state. And so we learned a lot about um, how to quickly transition into remote learning, come back out of remote learning. Last year, we started the school remotely. Um, we transitioned schools in and out of remote learning as we needed to based off of staff shortages or just absenteeism. So we know that we can make that transition. We've got everybody ready to go on a one-to-one -one computer if that's possible. Um, we've got our staff trained on all those online platforms. So we want kids in the building. We want them in person. We want them learning in front of their teacher. But if the situation arises and we start to see those cases tick up and we get the okay from the health department that we need to go to a remote learning situation in our county, then we definitely will switch to that. How is the vac vaccination rate among your staff? Staff-wise, uh, we were lucky. We were one of the first large groups last January to get moved up on the governor's kind of vaccine um, rollout. So we were able to get about 75% of our teachers vaccinated back in last January and February. And that's a pretty good accomplishment considering the first day of vaccinations, we were in a blizzard and it was 17 below zero that we had um, still staff members come out and do that. We've had some turnover from last year to this year. We've had some retirements and some resignations, and we've had a lot of new staff come in. But we're, we're pretty confident that that number is still around 75%, possibly even a little higher. Are you hoping that this coming year or these coming months bring vaccinations, uh, the, the uh, ability to have younger people vaccinated? Definitely. We had some, some pretty solid success last spring bringing um, FEMA vaccination clinics into our high schools after school and getting those students and those parents in those outlying communities vaccinated. They might be, not be able to drive 30 or 40 miles from where they live into the state fairgrounds um, to get those vaccines. Uh, we'd like to also offer those same in our middle schools. And if we need to, um, and kids can get moved up into vaccination status, we can offer those after school at our elementary schools as well. Because a lot of families live by the schools they go to, and they may not have um, great transportation that gets them to the health department or to Walgreens or to uh, our vaccination site at the Pueblo Mall. Todd, thank you so much for being with us. Ryan, thank you. I appreciate it. And um, I hope that the next time we talk, it's not about COVID, but about robotics or engineering. <sighs> Todd Sype, Public Information Officer for Pueblo District 70, former science and robotics teacher. He's also a member of the district's COVID response team. No vaccine, no service. That's what a group of 10 eateries in Denver will start to tell customers beginning September 30th. Bonanno Concepts, whose restaurants include Mizuna, Osteria Marco, and Luca, will insist that diners be vaccinated against COVID-19. Same goes for the company's 372 employees, says Jessica Kinney. She is Bonanno's director of people, essentially HR. I asked her first about that decision to require staff be immunized. Just in the last few weeks with the uptick in cases, the amount of breakthrough cases, and then also the, the information coming from the CDC, it seemed time to make the big move. Was the vaccination rate low among employees? Is this just about the final few folks? Help us understand that. Our vaccination rate is pretty high. We're at about 85%. When the vaccines first became available, we helped all of our employees that wanted help to get the vaccine. So 
I'm proud of our vaccination rate, but it's obviously not 100 percent. And it's important for the community that we we are at 100 percent. Do you expect people to quit over this? I think that there might be some attrition, but what I've been very reassured by in the 24 hours in the time that we announced this policy, we had almost 20% of our non-vaccinated employees sign up to get vaccines, which I was very happy about, surprised and, and happy. A fifth, that is, of those who are unvaccinated decided to make a different choice. Correct. Will there be some exceptions at all to this rule? Yeah. And what are they? Yeah. You know, if you have a medical reason for not getting vaccinated and we already have a few people, very valued employees that work for us that have medical reasons for not getting vaccinated. And so, of course, we will be accommodating those people. What qualifies? I'm just curious what would meet a standard for you of that? A note from the doctor. So they'll just bring in a note from the doctor and let us know that this isn't in their best interest. You said you expect some attrition. Did you kind of bake that in as this decision was being made? We did, absolutely. And there's really three reasons for companies to be trepidatious about this. And one is the staff attrition, right? Two, getting maybe a, a drop in your own business. And then, you know, three is just the logistics of all of it. Um, it is, it's work to roll this out. But from the staff attrition, what we really feel that even if there's some short-term attrition, ultimately we're we're going to be more appealing to those people that want to work in a safe environment, because that's also one of the reasons people cite for not coming back to work. It's one of the main reasons. I'd like to address something you said there, which is that you might expect a decrease in clientele as a reaction to the rule. And that segues nicely to the second aspect of this, which is the requirement that customers who walk into the restaurants be vaccinated. Let's first talk about that choice. And then I'll ask you about a potential drop in business. How did you decide that customers should be vaccinated? We, again, we just want the safest environment possible. And so we can vaccinate our staff, but if we have a lot of unvaccinated guests coming in, then it's not going to be as effective. And we also think that it's important to be doing our part from a community standpoint, and this is going to help that. How do you ask a guest to prove they're vaccinated or do you? Well, so this certainly leads into that third hurdle in terms of making this decision, right? And I think things will change. Technology is going to come more available. As a starting point, we're asking people to sign a health declaration uh, saying whether or not they are vaccinated or unvaccinated. They do that at like the host station or something? Correct. They can do it for restaurants that take reservations. They can do it through our online reservation system before they arrive. Um, And they can also do it at the host stand. And then I think of Milk Market, which is this kind of uh, elevated food court that you have in lower downtown Denver. And that's got a bunch of little different concepts in it. How do you testify that you are vaccinated in a place like that? Right. And it is certainly more difficult in our fast casual spots. Um, And so for those places, the Milk Market, and we have a few others, we'll just be increasing our signage and training our staff. Now, this is interesting because grocery store workers faced this early on, that in a way, employees who are experts at cooking or at hospitality all of a sudden had to become enforcers of policy. What conversations have you had with your staff about perhaps obstinate customers or ones who might get uh, even violent? We've seen acts of violence around some of this. 
Right. And that's what's so hard. And that's why there was some initial frustration that there wasn't just a legal mandate from the city, from the state, um, because that does make it easier for us independent restaurants and businesses trying to make this decision. And at the end of the day, sometimes it does fall to the the 18 year old host um, who's working part time. And as much as we train them, it's unfair really to be expecting that of them. So we, of course, do the training, but we train our managers too to react in situations that might be escalating. And this it's another reason too that we're enacting the health declaration so that hopefully we're taking some of that police work off the shoulders of our staff because they've they've certainly borne the brunt throughout this entire pandemic. And while they're amazing and they're very good at it, it's a tough line to walk. Earlier, you indeed expressed some fear that you might lose customers over this. But uh, here we are talking on the radio. And uh, so the skeptic in me is wondering if this is a PR ploy. Well, that's a great question. Oh, Frank and Jacqueline Bonanno, the owners of Bonanno Concepts, don't, or there's a reason you're talking to me. They're not looking to get their name out there about this just themselves. And from a personal standpoint, I'm happy that people want to talk about it because I think if people see our success, it's less about getting the PR out there and more about others being willing to adopt it. Um, Again, I think the fact that we had so many people sign up to get vaccines from our staff the minute we rolled out this policy is huge. Are you an HR professional by training, Jessica? I am. Yeah. Have you faced anything like this before in your career? Well, COVID obviously has been an education for all of us, right? And what we like to say, it's everyone's just been writing policies and changing policies every five minutes. We all just have to adapt. No, no one's seen anything like this. But the last year and a half have been an education and we've all gotten much better at change. Um, maybe, Maybe too much so. Did you do any legal consulting before you rolled this policy out? Or are you braced of for course. a potential lawsuit? Or yeah, talk to me about that, would you? Right. Yeah, we did. We did all the research. It's not a HIPAA violation. Other companies and businesses are are doing the same thing. And from a legal standpoint, of course, we want to make sure that we're <laughs> we're operating within the confines. But at the same time, for businesses, we have to make these decisions. And if we're going to be worried about lawsuits from the get go, it just paralyzes you. And we have to just move forward with what we think is right. A broader question about restaurants right now and the Delta variant. Are you reducing capacity in restaurants? Are you braced for more draconian limits from the government? Uh, just talk to me right now about the restaurant scene, because it's it remains a calculated risk to eat indoors. Right. I don't know that we're braced. I think, like I said before, it's it's just you're, you get so used to things changing all the time. And I think anyone that's following the news is, knows, hey... But, another big change might be coming. And so you you get used to it. And yes, I think that that might be something that, that comes down. We haven't changed our internal policies with regards to capacity. We have, a, if you're not vaccinated, you need to be wearing a mask. But right now, we'll see. We reserve the right to make changes to all of our policies, you know, in the next week or two, depending on how things go. The only thing we know is that we don't know, right? Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Jessica Kinney is Director of People at Bonanno Concepts, which operates 10 eateries in Denver. The restaurant group will require that staff and customers be vaccinated against COVID-19 starting September 30th. The dining rule doesn't apply to kids under 12 who can't yet be immunized. They just have to wear a mask when they're not eating. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with Life Aboard a Sub and life aboard a garbage truck. 
Denver author Stephen Dunn has lived both. I'm Ryan Warner, here with CPR News and KRCC. In 2012, Fred Harris watched cannabis legalization pass him by from a prison cell here in Colorado. Recreational pot was now legal, but that didn't change anything for him. And it left his teenage son in limbo. I kind of just like consider a person like that dead, like, you know, unfortunately. I'm Anne-Marie Awad. Hear Fred's story on the latest episode of On Something, available wherever you get your podcasts. The Whiting Award goes to emerging writers. It comes with $50,000, a nice chunk of change. But it's also a way of saying, hey, pay attention to this author. Stephen Dunn of Denver is one of this year's winners. He's written two novels, teaches at Regis University, and he's collaborating on a book dissecting the music of rapper Nas. We spoke in May. Stephen, welcome. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Does the fifty thousand dollars come as a check or is it like direct deposited? A uh, direct deposit. <laughs> oh, yeah. how how convenient! Even better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was just so curious about how the money arrived. I I want to start with your most recent novel, Water and Power. It's unlike anything I've ever read, and it is inspired by your time in the Navy. You served on a submarine. Your descriptions are so vivid that I felt claustrophobic. Were you claustrophobic in the sub? Uh, yeah, I was. And thank you for feeling claustrophobic. I mean, claustrophobic, too. That's a sign, then, <laughs> that you've achieved what you wanted? Uh, yeah, yeah. I think, for me, I got used to it. So, like, allowing yourself to be claustrophobic and kind of crazy was the best way for me to go about it. Like, I'm on here. I can't go anywhere. This is it, you know. This is not a normal situation, so I'm not going to pretend like I'm normal <laughs> or anything. Like, you know, just... Do stuff, read a bunch, play cards, you know, act silly with a bunch of people and and work, you know, and try not to hate your life. <laughs> and try not to hate your life. In other words, try not to fight the yeah. claustrophobia. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Interesting. You write about oxygen levels. Oh, yeah. And oxygen candles. Help us understand those. Um, so the oxygen level, so normal earth atmospheric oxygen is 21%. And so on a subnormal oxygen level is 17%. So you're just always tired no matter what. You can get 12 hours of sleep, you'll still be sleepy. So the candles, the name is a little misleading because when I first heard candles, I thought candles. But so it's like a chemical burn, you know, and these like canisters are about maybe the um, diameter of a pie pan. And then they're about like knee high or something. So they like just kind of burn at the top, but it's like a chemical. So you don't see fire. It's just like ash, like kind of slowly burning down like a flat top, kind of like, I don't know, like imagine a chapstick or something like a giant chapstick. Yeah, with yeah. Ash. yeah. And and it's providing oxygen when there's not quite enough? Yeah, yeah. When the oxygen dips below like 17, 16%, they will burn oxygen candles. Yeah. I, I love how you described it as a giant chapstick. <laughs> yeah. And it makes me wonder how you arrive when you're writing at good metaphor. Oh, I think thinking of a metaphor that's like close to the thing, like sometimes I dislike metaphors because they take you too far away from the object. You know, like my heart was like a fleeting ship or some <laughs> like that. Oh. <laughs> um, but yeah, I like metaphors that like stick close to the thing in image. 
and maybe function sometimes too. So like the chapstick metaphor is perfect for that, you know. Like yeah, it, it didn't take it me out down. of the sub. Yeah, okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> Which felt important. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then I could understand how the device would work. Okay, perfect. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to have you read a passage about ending a tour on a sub, okay? Okay. We finally get off the sub in the middle of the ocean because our mission is done and the sub has to get back to business. We climb down the sub into a little boat. Waves splash inside the boat. The little boat takes us to a ship. We climb up the side of the ship. We wait on the ship for two hours. A helicopter takes us to base. We wait on base for an hour until a cab takes us to a hotel. One of the submariners is being medically discharged from sub duty because he needed a psychological evaluation. For four months, he dribbled an imaginary basketball around and never spoke to anyone. During his evaluation, he spun the ball on his index finger and shot hook shots. When we got off, he passed the ball to someone else. He didn't need it any longer. In the hotel bar, I hear him speak for the first time. He says, see, it takes a lot of stupid maneuvers just to get back to normal life. This book, Water and Power, it's like a literary scrapbook of your memories of imagined interviews of graphics and illustrations related to military life. What did you want to achieve with it? I wanted to achieve something that like pure memoir can't and also something that pure fiction can't. So I think like with things that are pure fiction, sometimes it doesn't have a believability to it. Um, people just kind of dismiss it if they know like it's just straight fiction, even though I say this book is fiction. And then sometimes memoir is so concerned with facts that they can't really like get to the emotional depth sometimes or like really speculate and stretch things out like I always give the example of um damn American Sniper you know where oh yeah he's like I shot 309 people or whatever I don't know the exact number but the argument becomes no he really didn't do that he only killed 300 people and I'm like why are we arguing about nine people I'm like it's a lot of people so that's what I feel like memoir and biographies do is like really focus or concerned with facts and military like thrives off of you know these factual things so me doing with scrapping you know things together my personal experiences felt real because they're also real but then I can speculate into things that aren't necessarily true but they feel real and I don't have to like pretend to be factual about them and yeah. you get into other people's heads yes in what you might imagine is going on behind their eyes yeah some people gave me um there were a lot of like actual people who gave me their story so it has the perception that I got into a lot of people's heads, but um, some interviews I fictionalize in there, but most of them are people, you know, and that's another thing I think is missing from military literature is it being multivocal because a lot of it is like a singular heroic narrative, usually from a straight white man, you know, so. That's the, yeah. You include snippets from recruitment ads over the years, campaigns designed by Madison Avenue, to attract people to military service. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Were you recruited? 
Yeah, I was recruited. It was partial. Like one of my cousins joined and, you know, we always see the images growing up. We saw, I think at the time when I joined, it was like, let the journey begin, you know, like very like futuristic computer stuff going on and, you know, the ships. Above all, it will demand your honor, your courage, and your commitment. I think those images are important when discussing the military, too, because it's like any other company. It's designed to sell you a story, to sell you a brand in order for you to do this. And I think those recruiting posters takes the military out of this, like, odd, like, holy, sacred church thing that we all volunteer for out of love and service into something like, it's a company, you know, this is what they do. And I think people know that, too. But I think seeing the images adds another layer to that. Yeah. And to connect it to Madison Avenue, to think the same firm that is drawing up this ad for the Navy might be drawing up a toothpaste ad. Yeah, yeah same thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Would you let your yeah. own kids serve? Um, I... I have discouraged them from doing it. Um, I mean, we'll have honest conversations about it. If there's something they really wanted to do, I would support them. But my daughter is 19, so she is old enough to grow up in it. You know, like, know when I was in the military, all the moving around, kind of the unhappiness. So she was like, I'm I'm not doing that. Mm. You know, um, my son doesn't know any better. He's five. So I've been out of the Navy for like 11 years now. So maybe he may see some images elsewhere. I'm like, that's a good idea, you know. And I joined because of poverty. So like my kids aren't poor. So hopefully they don't have to do that like I had to, you know. You joined, you needed the money. Oh, yeah, yeah, college. I didn't even know you can, like, take loans out for college when I was in high school. Because <laughs> so I grew up in, like, I yeah, it was an odd place in West Virginia, and I just wasn't aware, you know, that you could just take loans out for college. Not always the best idea, but I didn't know that was an option, you know. Yeah. Indeed, you grew up in rural West Virginia, which is reflected in your earlier novel, Potted Meat. Yeah. And it inspired a short film called The Usual Route, whose main character is a trash collector. Mm -hmm. And I understand that's work you did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was it like? That's, to this day, is like the funnest job I ever had. I don't know. I like being outside, and I like nature. I mean, I'm not necessarily fond of trash, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, you know. Wait, we but have I, to stop with that line. <laughs> I'm not necessarily <laughs> fond of trash, he said. <laughs> That's a great line. But I, I am in a way, it's interesting, like I am super interested in what's discarded and kind of like the images that those make. So in like the short film, which was adapted from the book, I talk about my trash route and there's a, you know, a live raccoon like chewing on a baby shoe, then a mattress, then like some dead kittens and then funeral flowers. So I'm like, what's discarded kind of creates its own type of beauty in a way and living in a discarded place in a way, and as like a discarded people, you know, so people already leave Appalachia out of the conversation mostly. And then within that, they don't talk about black people living there. So it's like these multiple layers of like being discarded. So I've always kind of been, I mean, even before I had language for it, you know, like I knew I liked trash, you know, or decay and what's discarded. So yeah. Did you feel thrown out? Um... In a way, yeah, yeah, or like not welcomed, you know, in larger conversations or larger, sometimes even with like the larger conversation of blackness in the country, you know, I did. so it was something about that, that not always filling in like a sort of outcast in a way. Do you think that that had to do with geography? The idea that Appalachia, 
I guess like I think of my own kind of preconceptions of Appalachia and the mm-hmm. first thing I picture is a white person in the hollers. Oh, totally. Do you yeah. think that's <laughs> Yeah, that that's the image. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, and to be fair, like yes, that is like a prevalent image or population there too, but there's a lot of black people there, especially in my town from the people who came from down south to work in the coal mines. And there is an issue of like just geography, right? Like there's no real like highways coming through, like no major cities connecting. So, yeah. As a writer, you have a really strong voice. I mean, whether it's in your narration, if it's writing characters, um, even on your own social media feeds. Oh, <laughs> there's a strong voice. Oh, thanks. What advice do you have for people who are trying to develop their voices as writers? Oh, that is such a hard question because I'm often surprised when people say I have a strong voice and I appreciate it. But I don't know. I think for me, like I mind my community and like this whole like blackness of like what I've been talking my whole life. I mean, how I've been talking my whole life and how people in my neighborhood talk and all of that stuff. So that's what I've drawn from personally. And it's something I appreciated. I didn't know. I mean, I'm sure I was aware it had some type of strength behind it. So I think that would be my advice is like, look to your communities. Where do you see strength in voices or just something you admire and just kind of pull from that? In that way, do you channel? Oh, totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In Potted Me, I, I sent a book to my cousin and he appears a lot in the book. You know, he was like, man, I had no idea I talked like that. <laughs> he was like, you got me perfect. I was like, yeah, man, I listened to you a lot like growing up, you know. <laughs> so I love that your advice really is listen Yo, to yeah. the voices around you. Yeah. And draw on those. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Is that a more authentic outcome if you do that, do you think, than sort of pure invention? Oh, to- um, maybe both. You could do both. But for me, it was a pure outcome, like for the book that I needed to write. Like if I would have paid more attention to literature of how, and I did, you know, I tried to write this book the way like older white people say you should write books, you know, with this super proper English and all of that. But it has a lot of limitations. And I put proper in quotes because no English is proper. I'm on my soapbox now. But uh, <laughs> Well, good. Stay stay there. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's no such thing as proper English. Like, all variances of Englishes are proper, right? So, like, what's proper for my neighborhood was the way these people talked, and that's the way I needed to write my book. Were you a big reader growing up? Not at all. Yeah, not at all. I read, <laughs> yeah, I read one book from the time I was like 12 to 22. So what was it? Um, was, oh, The Old Man in the Sea, which was cool. You know, yeah, it was a nice little cool book. Uh, we watched some other, like The Little Women and The Grapes of Wrath and stuff. We watched those, but I wasn't a big reader. But I always make the argument, though, um, since I'm writing this book about Nas, I open up with that. Like, I'm not a, I was never a big reader, and people tell you that, but I listen to a lot of rap albums. So, I think the point of reading when people say you have to be a big reader. Yeah, because I I hear that a lot right among authors. Yeah. Make sure you read a lot. You absorb a lot. Yeah, yeah. And maybe the key word is absorb, right? Like I listened. I was a painter, you know, and all of that stuff. So I was actively creating while absorbing, you know, listening to people talk, listening to comedians and, you know, all of this stuff. So, yeah. Was there any sense of stigma or shame that came with not being a big reader entering circles where you hear all the time read 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 oh yeah a lot yeah i think when i was in undergrad you know not all of my teachers there were a few teachers who were like 
never even stressed that, <laughs> you know, mm. but visiting writers and stuff, we'd be like, you got to be a big reader. And I think people coming up to like my peers, you know, we're all just starting. They hear these these ideas too of you having to be a big reader and people still do, you know, like I've been a reader since I was five and blah, blah, blah. I've been a writer since I was five and all of that. So, yeah, I had a little stigma at first, but luckily, like I was older when I started writing. So I was like, that, man, don't worry about it. I'm, I'm not concerned about that. I know what I have to do. I'm really glad you said that. It feels really freeing yeah. because I I'm not a fast reader. Yeah. And I can't say that every time I open a book, I always enjoy it. Yeah. And it's really hard. It's hard to say that in circles where you're kind of surrounded by authors. So that's true. Thank huh? you. Yeah. You for welcome. saying it. Yeah. Thank you for, you know, for saying that also. Well, yeah. sure. I think there are a few like identifying things. The big three when it comes to being a writer or stuff is okay. like most people like you have to be a big reader. And then with that comes introversion, you know, and I'm not like on anybody for saying they're introverted. So introversion and also like not being good with math like those three things come together right and i hear it all the time in every single writing class workshop like oh you know we're writers we're not good at math i'm like um i am i'm also not introverted <laughs> you know it also did read a lot so yeah but i feel like most people may be those things like genuinely but they apply it to everyone who are writer and a lot of people think they have to be those things well i think this sometimes. is why representation matters totally yeah. Like it's important for other writers to be able to see examples yeah. of success that don't look like whatever the the cliche is. Yeah, yeah, and I have to constantly look outside of writing. I mean, I, I am inspired by other writers and stuff, but for a lot of stuff I have to constantly look outside of writers and find models on how to live my writing life and writing career. I Give me I, an example. Chris Rock. I read a lot of Chris Rock videos. So he specifically talks about like going to um, comedy clubs where nobody is expecting him. So like he really has the work to make people laugh. <laughs> you know, these things. Now, me, I'm trying to be a better person. <laughs> That's right. That's all you want. You want to be better. I'm trying to be a better person. It's hard, it's hard to be a better person because I know me. That's right, you know you. Today, I gave a bum $5. Bum was down there giving $5. And that's kind of cool, I gave a bum $5, right? But the problem is, I know I gave the bum $5. Like, I'm just too conscious in my head. Like, I know I gave him $5. It's almost like I'm looking at God as I gave him the money, like, look at me, I'm a nice person. I'm a good human being, right, Lord? And comedians also, like, bring other people along. Like, somebody always opens for them, you know? So, and I've gotten in a time where I've been, like, the only, like, non-white person on reading lists and stuff, but... I don't appreciate that. So I've like taken the comedian stance of like, I'm going to bring somebody with me not to open up, but like, I want to make space for these other people. So yeah, I treat my writing career like my rap career <laughs> and my comedian career. <laughs> yeah. Cause I think they have good models for collaboration and community. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. In other words, if you're asked to be on a panel, you might invite someone yourself. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. Let's talk yeah. about the Nas project. Oh yeah. 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 
I'd like to just dissect, diagram a track <laughs> with you. Let's do it. Yeah, yeah. Why, first off, Nas? That was my literature growing up. And he's doing so many cool things with stories. And I like stories. He's always telling stories. And, of course, like the skill as an MC that people love. But a lot of his stuff is like movies to me. And I've always been able to, like, visualize everything he's been saying and he he gets into character and you know he he writes from different characters you don't know what's fact or fiction so I'm like uh, Nas is like he's a writer I mean of course he's I mean a you've writer, just described but, very much yeah. your approach to writing and what's I, fact what's super, fiction yeah. what, which whose voice you know <laughs> super influenced by Nas yeah uh, when I first started being a writer where people were like oh read the greats you got to read the classics I went back and listened to Nas I was like that's that's my greats that's my classics you know so this is me like coming back around to that and giving it this full attention in a book. You've chosen New York State of Mind Part 2. Yeah. To listen to snippets of and maybe talk about with me. Totally. Yeah. Why why this track? Movement um and world building. That's why yeah that track for me it's just and it's something I'm always thinking about like being obsessed with geography and places being from West Virginia wanting to look out and so I remember just listening to New York State of Mind, and it felt like my neighborhood, even though it was not my neighborhood. You want to pick uh, some lyrics um, to start with? Yeah, I, the opening. Yeah, yeah, just the opening few. Start at the very beginning. Yeah, yeah. City door, broken glass in the hallway, bloodstained floors, neighbors, look at every bag you bring through your doors, lock the top lock, mama should have cuffed me to the radiator, why not? It might have saved me later from my block and why cops, hookers crawling off the stroke, coughing stitches in their head, stinking and I dread thinking they be snitching, but who else? When he says, broken glass in the hallway, bloodstained floors, neighbors, look at every bag you bring through your doors and then he says lock the top lock so right now it's like i came up with the terms called like the source of the movement and then the um the mode of it so the body is moving horizontally through you know the hallway then he goes inside the apartment building so that would be like bodily horizontal and then he looks down because he notices stuff on the streets, you know, like look down from the window and see stuff. So then you have like visual vertical or whatever. So that's that's how Nas is building these worlds in New York state of mind. And, and of course, like the vertical aspect is important in high rise projects. And that's why I thought it felt similar to my town because we lived in a lot of hills and we we're always moving up and down <laughs> and everything they bust a ue i jog to my building come out later wearing camouflage see the sergeant and the captain strangle men it's gasping for air till they move no more and just stare with dead eyes tie the riots and then a little further in that verse he comes back down on the street and you know he sees i see the cops strangle men gasping for air and everything so now like the view has changed and he's just looking at it horizontal so that's like a visual horizontal as you describe it it feels to me like flying through something oh yeah 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 um and i don't know why i'm getting as you describe his tools almost a video game world sense yeah i think that would be yeah yeah because he does it from like the first person sometimes like the first person point of view and then sometimes you feel like you're distant at it and then he uses multiple like he'll do a montage in there so it's very filmic you know like very cinematic and stuff you see about it you read about it it's in your papers it's in your daily news 
New York Chronicles, every day, the crime rate, the murder rate, the money rate, the paper chase. You know what I mean? New York State of Mind, baby. Check it out. I'm at the gambling spot, my hands on the knot. New York Yankee cap, cover my eyes, stand in one spot. I take a dose, send him home to a shoebox. You lost that, I put your dollar in the jukebox. Hear my favorite song, all these can sing along. All the cigarette smokes clog in my lungs. Hood rats flashing their tongue, young thugs blasting their gun. We got reputations. How he does the montage, you like sisters pregnant, fathers on drugs, beds of piss infested. You know, you know he's talking about the project, so he's like pulling images from far in the projects and these plural objects so like the montage is gathering in a huge space and it feels quicker because the images have to travel faster and stuff so mm, the pace of that yeah it's really cool and then he does that um like he moves data down where he talks about how many friends he had growing up he like i had eight friends seven friends seven turned to six you know so he's like moving down like this constant movement and he does all of these different types of movement in this one song it's it's so good yes <laughs> Yeah, and I'm just happy to be able to like give this type of attention back to this thing that's giving me so much, you know, like to break it down in these ways. Yeah. Have you ever met Nas? No, I haven't. <laughs> dream would that be a dream come true? Yeah, or? it would. Yeah. I've uh-huh. seen him in concert once, which was cool, but yeah, to meet him that that would be nice. Yeah. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Colorado author Stephen Dunn, a winner of the 2021 Whiting Award for Emerging Writers. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our crew. Carl Bielek. Ali Budner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. 